Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. And we're back with a college football sprint with Coach Zach Smith. Uh, national championship game didn't go as Buckeye Nation had hoped, so we have a lot a lot to talk about. I think it's it's easy to kind of get caught up in the emotion of our loss. Um, but, you know, and there are a lot of reasons to be upset. But I do think that also we ran into a, a really, really, really good team with a lot of talent and great coaching. Um, and let's let's keep the perspective of we lost in the national championship game. There are a lot of programs out here who haven't even played in the playoff era, played in a national championship game. But let's start off by talking about the game. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We got outclassed and our ass beat by Alabama <laughs> in every facet of the game yesterday. Um, but, you know, I think as we were talking on text, the moment we lost Trey Sermon on the, the first play of the game, I think that threw our entire game plan off in terms of what we were going to need to do uh, to win this game, which was have a balanced attack and keep Alabama's offense off the field, losing losing our best player who's been playing out of his mind on the first play. It reminded me a lot of what happened to Ohio State when we played you guys, uh, Florida, when we lost Ted Ginn early in that game, um, Zach. And I wanted you to kind of talk about what you kind of saw in that game and how you might have compared that to what happened to Ohio State in this game. You witnessed kind of the air come out of the sails in that game when we lost Ted Ginn. And it seemed like that same thing happened in a lot of ways when we lost Trey Sermon yesterday. Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to to point to losing a key player early in the game as a reason or a what if, like what if yeah. Ted Ginn would have played or what if Trey Sermon would have played. But the reality was in, in 2006, Ohio State was just outmatched athletically across the board. Ted Ginn wouldn't have mattered. And the defensive yeah. staff at Florida made a point to all, all coverages were checked and starred on Anthony Gonzalez. It wasn't, no one was worried about Ted Ginn. He was a straight yeah. line speed guy that you had to worry about deep. But other than that, he was just an average receiver. He was more, uh, just an impact player in the return game, which you saw, yeah. right? Opening yeah. kick. And yeah. I promise you this much, we would have never kicked to that kid ever again after he returned yeah. the opening kick. So he, yeah. um, so that's that game. And, and Trey Sermon was definitely a big loss, but you look at it and Ohio State kind of keeps it close till halftime. Devontae Smith gets hurt. There's no reason in the third quarter yeah. down, whatever it was, 11 yeah. points, that they can't come back and get in the in the middle of this game, but they still can't stop Alabama. They're without their Heisman Trophy winner. They're essentially now they're just a good offense without their most electric playmaker. Their other receivers were average at best. Jalen Waddle couldn't even run or plant off of his right foot. Yeah, I mean it was like it just it just it just wasn't their day. I mean they weren't going to win whether Trey Sermon played without Devontae Smith. It was just the defense was not going to stop that offense point blank. And and because of that, it's such a game of momentum. So if you don't get a stop once in a while, the offense gets demoralized. And that's easy as an offensive coach for me to blame the defense, right? The yeah. offense certainly could have motivated the defense by hitting a couple deep balls, like taking some shots and winning. And it was just a bad game, both sides of the ball, and they never could get momentum. Yeah. And from the start of the game, man, it kind of felt like we were just kind of winded from the Clemson game. 
the energy felt a little low, you know, the like Justin Fields definitely, you know, was still feeling whatever that hit was oh, last no doubt. week. But I mean, I think all of those factors coming into the game probably made an impact as well. And, you know, Zach, I think when you look at the season, especially a season that almost never happened for Ohio State, how would you judge, you know, the success of the season? And then, you know, as a fan, I mean, what what should I be looking at to you know be optimistic about for next year? I mean, it's, it's the Ryan Day era. That's that's the optimism, right? So far, he's two for two making the playoffs. Lost Clemson last year, avenged that loss and beat Clemson. First time Ohio State ever has. First coach at Ohio State to ever beat Clemson. I mean, there's so many positives here. And just battling through the adversity. I mean, the reality is, I don't know that Ohio State could have ever beaten Alabama. They were just too good. I mean, they were mm-hmm. almost like, it's really a conversation like them and last year's LSU, like who's the better team? Outside of that, neither team, no team was going to beat LSU last year. No team was going to beat Alabama this year. Um, but just surviving the adversity and, and everything the Big Ten kind of thrust upon these athletes and coaches, everything that COVID did, I mean, everything they went through to come out, beat Clemson, kind of get that monkey off their back and move forward with in, in the Ryan Day era. And the cool thing is he's recruiting at a Nick Saban level right now. Yeah. And so you look yeah. at Nick Saban's tenure when he first started, he started recruiting that way about year two and started dominating whatever it was, year three, year four. Yeah. So it's only been a what a year and a half into the Ryan Day era, two years into the Ryan Day era, and it is we're just the tip of the iceberg right now. I mean, he's just scratched the surface. I mean, he really is trying to build the next Alabama here in Columbus, and so you have to have some optimism towards that. Like, are they there yet? No, obviously not. Alabama just beat the brakes off of them, but they will be. I, yeah, yeah. I also just just wanted to point out. I mean, Devonta Smith is unbelievable he is the real deal of player i have i have never seen somebody in college that dominant no doubt i mean you're you're also you've also probably rarely seen a game plan that was that flawless i mean they yeah yeah. Ohio State stuck to kind of stuck to their guns, stuck to what they do, which is kind of stubborn. And it's even more stubborn to not make in-game adjustments. I mean, and and Steve Sarkeesian did an unbelievable job of just all the little game plan nuances to attack little tendencies like yeah. low red zone man coverage, going getting the corners to go over, getting them to try to travel and return in Devontae Smith right now. I mean, he yeah. got him so many easy touches yeah. to to let him dominate the game. And it was just well scripted. Oh my gosh. And I mean, you know, you're just one mistake away. Sean Wade doesn't get hands on him when he finally gets to press him, doesn't even touch him. And Devontae Smith runs right by him for a huge play. Right. And then tough Borland gets isolated and Marcus Williamson, for some reason, forgets that Devontae Smith won the Heisman and abandons tough and leaves him one-on-one on on the Heisman winner. It's just like (laughs) so many things happen where you're like, oh my gosh, man, this is, this is not going to work. But the bright side is your tight ends, dude. One-handed catch by Rucker. Ballin. That was Ballin. dope. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I want I wanted to touch on that um, because I think this is an important part of what makes Saban and his staff the class of not just college football, but I think even when you look at outside of the Patriots at the NFL level, the things that they do every time I watch an Alabama game, and somebody seems to figure something out about them or uh, tries to exploit a tendency, they adjust faster than any team I've ever seen. They make those in-game adjustments, and it was highlighted yesterday. We blitzed them. 
We got the fumble. We tried that exact same blitz again. They had the screenplay set up to beat it and exploit it. And that was like within five minutes. So Zach, I just wanted to ask you what makes it so difficult to adjust from your pregame plan in game and why it's stands out so much that Saban, there's a lot of great coaches in this league and in, in football generally, but most people don't adjust that quickly, including our program. We did not adjust to Steve Sarkeesian's game plan yesterday, quite frankly, on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, I think it's just tough. It's tough to get to to get an accurate depiction of what's going on. It's going so fast. It's so chaotic. You're you're disjointed. You know, half of you are on the field, half of you are in the box. You're not together. You're not watching it together. It's not like the staff room where everyone's sitting at the table watching a screen, right? And it's yeah. just it's just hard to get all of that figured out and communicated. And, and you have to have really really excellent. I guess, eyes, football coaches in the box that can identify what's going on and communicate it to the field and and rapidly get everyone on that page and discuss a plan to change. Now, that's why everyone talks about halftime adjustments, right? It's your deep breath opportunity to sit there as a staff and get together and talk about what's going on. It's still chaotic, but not near as chaotic as in-game. And and Alabama did a great job doing it. Now, I mean, you know, Hitting hitting a screen on a blitz that could be luck, you know. You don't know. It, it could be. They called it at the right time. I mean, I'm it. Hindsight, it's like wow, that was brilliant. But you know, it could have been base defense, drop eight, and it's a yeah. terrible play. Um, but but they did do a good job. And I'm I'm more shocked that coming out of halftime, Alabama did what they did in the first half. Devontae Smith gets hurt, and there still was no, I guess, no backstop for the defense. It was just like another half of dominant Alabama offense. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's it's something we saw all season with the defense is that tendency to just give a lot of space to the defenders underneath. And um, I heard the commentator say it, but it was like, you know, third quarter national championship. At some point, you got to stop giving away those easy unders. Yeah, 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 and you can't give away space, Zach. I, mean, it, I was going to ask you this. You can't be soft and not create pressure, right? The whole point of being able to play soft, from my understanding, is if your front seven is able to create the pressure to allow you to do that, right? If you're just playing soft and you're not getting pressure, that seems like a recipe for disaster. There's no doubt. And and, and I I guess I think the, the one thing that I was just most disappointed about was outside of the, the adjustments that could have been made that didn't get made was just the lack of creativity all year to mm-hmm. compensate for the fact that there was no Chase Young, no Nick Bosa, mm-hmm. no Joey Bosa. Like he wasn't there. Jonathan Cooper's a great player and he, yeah. he played really well. He actually, he beat the tackle several times, but there's other athletes on this team that can provide that spark if you put them in the in, in the situation. Baron Browning rushed the quarterback five times out of 70 or 80 snaps. Five. And one of them was a sack fumble. Like, why that kid all year long was not a third down pass rusher or a, a predominant blitzer? I mean, they blitzed Tough Borland a lot. And he never made, I mean, never even made a wave. And it's not a knock on tough. Tough's good at what he's good at, and he's not good at what he's not good at. That's fine. He's still a good player. You just have to accentuate their strengths, right? And that's I think that's the most confusing thing that I saw watching it was like, why are we having tough Borland cover Najee Harris in the in open space? Like that's a bad idea, right? Yeah. You, you gotta find a way to protect him. When yeah. you're coaching, Zach, do you see that with players where you might have a guy who, let's say, is more athletically gifted? than somebody else who may be on paper at the start of the season is better in that position. But you, you as a coach, you know, you see what they could be. And so you put them in that position all season. And, you know, 
lose the opportunity to maybe have the better player in there? Do you think there's a there's an element of you know what you want the player to be versus the reality of who they are seeping in here? Well, there's a comfortability for a football coach to have a guy that you trust that knows what he's doing and is tough and is a good leader, right? Yeah. And and I saw it in 2013, probably the most glaring example at the safety position. We had a young Von Bell who was freaky talented, but yeah. we never played him early. Then we get late in the year and Christian Bryant breaks his leg and now we're playing with a, a much lesser safety when Von Bell could have already had experience and already been that guy. And then we end up losing to Michigan State, losing to Clemson. A lot of it was safety play. And so – it's just it's a lot of times it's just comfortable. It's a guy that you know he's going to block the right guy or you know he's going to go the right way. You know yeah. he's going to, you know, try really hard and give he's you great effort. Not going to make that critical mistake, right? He might yeah. get beat, but he's not going to make that critical mistake that might cost you the game. Right? So, right. And my my philosophy's always been I'd rather I'd rather make mistakes with a great player than no mistakes with an average player. I mean, that's yeah. just the reality of it, right? He Michael Thomas taught me this as a, in 2012, whatever. Let's see. I was 28 years old the receiver coach at Ohio State, first time at a big-time school. Michael Thomas was a true freshman in, in spring ball and really in the fall. He would run the wrong route half the time. Yeah. But Braxton would throw him the ball, and he would go up and make a freaky catch, and it would be, you'd sit there and be like, well, it was a 20-yard gain. I know he screwed up, but, I mean, a great player that didn't quite know what he was doing yet is better than an average player that didn't because an average player is just going to get covered. You know what I mean? And Mike Thomas was a great example of it. He was so good. He just hadn't figured out the offense yet. And we'd march down the field and score. And you're like, wow, he had three MAs, but he was balling. <laughs> How can you tell that they're going to actually grasp the offense? Because I know a lot of incredibly talented athletes that don't actually understand the sport to a, to a strong degree, right? Yeah. Like they could run a route, but they don't know how to modify it based on different coverages. How, how can, like, what is that for you as a coach? And, you know, let's say even on the defensive side of the ball for Kerry Combs is looking at the team. How can you tell if someone's able to step up at the start of the season? I mean, it, you got to know your players and you got to, I've never had a player that couldn't learn the offense. Um, I've had a lot of players that you needed to find creative ways to teach. Mm -hmm. And that's part of, that's the part of being a teacher as a coach. I mean, we had learning specialists come in, but these, these kids have full-time learning specialists, right? The kids that maybe don't, aren't, aren't great in science or aren't great in, in academics, period. They have learning specialists come in and, and, and scientifically, they know what they're talking about. They study these kids on like, how do they learn? Is it motor learning? Is it, you know, is it visual learning, audio learning, whatever? They study all this stuff and they would come in and meet with us and tell us like, all right, you have this kid right here. Devin Smith learns this way, this way, this way. And they, they tell you his strengths, tell you his weaknesses. Then it's on you as a coach to teach him. And I mean, I've had kids um, at Florida and, and really everywhere I've been that that you you do an IQ test and they, they, they might be like handicapped IQ wise, right? But yeah. after a year or two, they're really smart football players. And they're also, you, you teach them the right way to learn math, all of a sudden they excel at math. You know what I mean? It's no different than than school. It's, you just got to find how to teach them. And if you do, these kids will thrive and they'll learn and they'll be smart players. It's, it, a lot of times coaches make excuses like, no, nah, he's just dumb. No, he's not. You just don't know how to teach. Yeah, yeah that's, no. I just want to quickly note, man, I, I really respect the accountability you take from the perspective of a coach. I think that that mentality is something that, a lot more business people need to hear in terms of, you know, oh, my team can't do this or like, yeah, right. oh, this guy's never going to get it. It's like, no, the problem's on you. Like, you got to figure out how to communicate that information because you're right. I mean, nobody is thick enough to not be able to grasp 
fundamental concepts, you know, in any field, it's about communicating the information the right way. Absolutely. And having the patience to do so. Right. Um, and, And I think also like keying in on that, there are two things, you know, Kerry Coombs is getting a lot of, a lot of flack here. Um, obviously, you know, because our secondary didn't seem like they were put in a great position to succeed. Um, and then also he's a first time, it's the first time he's been tasked to kind of be the defensive play caller of a defense. So I want to ask this question because we, I want to talk about BIA and our secondary Ohio state prides itself on its secondary play and has done so across all coaches that we've had pretty much. But this year seemed like there was a significant drop off in our secondary play. And the question that I have is, you know, we all, we understand that that's one of the most difficult positions to play. How much was the play impacted by one, having a new coach, having that coach, having more responsibility than he's ever had to beyond just special teams and coaching up the DBs and being responsible for play calling. And then actually the personnel grouping of having guys replacing Jordan Fuller starter in the NFL as a rookie, Damon Arnett starter in the NFL as a rookie, Jeff Okuda starter in the NFL as a rookie, Chase Young superstar in the NFL as a rookie. You know, how difficult did it make the development aspect when you're not getting the same number of reps? We had COVID issues throughout the year. We had COVID issues before the year. We didn't have spring ball. Do you think that that was part of it? Or do you think that this is also an extension of kind of what we've seen from Ohio State where the offense is where we stress a lot of our our value? And as a result of that, the defense having this bend but not break philosophy is the natural extension of what we need to do because of how we play on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, I mean, if, if you really look at it, like what happened to the secondary, we can blame COVID, we can blame no spring ball, we can blame all this other nonsense that everyone had to deal with. Yeah. The reality is this, like the, the kids that should have been sophomores and juniors, there's there's two corners on the roster that were recruited in those two classes. And that's seven banks who played pretty well, played yeah. decent, right? And yeah. then Cameron Brown, who was hurt. Cameron Brown was a receiver that I took because no one wanted him on defense. And I knew he could be a great corner. And if he wasn't a great corner, I knew that I could make him into something as a receiver. So you're talking about three classes of corners. And the only corners that were taken was seven banks three years ago and legend last year, who's a true freshman. He's not ready to play yet. So they had, they didn't recruit any corners. Like to sit here and say like Jeff Okuda, four classes ago, Jeff Okuda came in, right? That class came in. When that class left, there was no one else recruited. Yeah. in those three classes that were true corners. And so it was a recruiting error that led to this secondary not being BIA, right? It wasn't development. It wasn't COVID. It was they didn't recruit well. That's the reality of it. And you look at the running back position, it's similar. They, they got a bunch of really good backs. Trey Sermon was the only elite back so far, right? And so now they have a guy coming in, Trayvon Henderson, who's a freak show. Guess what? The running backs are going to look really good when he gets here. It's just I'm glad to see it all goes to recruiting. I'm glad to see the conversation be systematic here and not pointed at any of the players because I think it's important. You know, I would consider myself a layperson fan here. And I think hopefully that's a perspective I provide to this podcast, the guy who doesn't really know that much about football. But to understand from you, Zach, the extremely complicated part of coaching, recruiting, all of the, the machinations that go into just putting together the team, 
shows you that 90% of the win or the loss is not happening on the field. You know what I mean? There's players, sure. there's executing, but there's practice, there's structure, there's culture, there's recruiting. There's so many other pieces to it that ultimately contribute to the success. And, you know, those parts of the game are not really discussed at length. Yeah, for sure. And I think, sure. I think, I think you brought up a, good, a very good point too, about not just identifying talent, but placing talent because guys, pretty much every great player at the high school level is the best offensive player on their team too. Right. right? But actually getting them into college and figuring out where does this kid's skill set play the best? And quite frankly, the one that I didn't understand, and I, I continue to say this, I'm a big fan of the kid, but perhaps, perhaps Sean Wade should have been developed as a free safety this whole time, right? Perhaps. We don't know. He went from playing inside, which he excelled at. He was a, one of the best slot corners I've ever seen. But then you take a guy who's already shown you he's great at something and say, hey, by the way, now in a shortened offseason, we want you to adjust and, and be our number one corner on the outside on an island. Perhaps that might not have been the best position for him. Maybe he is meant to be Malik Hooker. And a great example of this, I will say, is, is Malcolm Jenkins. Malcolm Jenkins was able to excel at corner at the college level because he was just that smart of a football player. Oh, yeah. But then when he got to the NFL – they recognized, hey, this guy isn't a cornerback. This guy is a safety. And 12, 13 years later, we're talking about one of the best safeties in the last 10, 15 years. How much of that do you think is happening? And how much pressure is there in recruiting if a guy wants to play a certain position and has a desire to be a certain position, even if his film and skill set says, you know what, he'd really be great at this position. How much pressure do coaches face to kind of fit the player into what they want to be versus telling them, Hey, this is what you're best at. Yeah. I mean, it happens all the time. And I think what happened to Sean Wade, I see Sean Wade a lot like Tyron Matthew, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's a, he's a slot corner. He's a safety. He might be able to play outside right every yeah. now and then, but, but he got put outside because of what we just talked about. They didn't have, they didn't recruit any corners. Yeah. So they yeah. had a dominant player inside that could have played. He could have been the, like Tyron Matthew, just the absolute wild card yeah. and played everywhere and been yeah. dominant all over the field. But instead, they locked him in outside because they yeah. had no other options. Yeah. And so here's Sean Wade is. He's getting shit on for, for having a bad year or having a yeah. bad game. Sean Wade had two bad plays in that game, two. Yeah. He got beaten press, man, because he hardly plays press anymore. Yeah. And the other one was the one with the motion where he got outrun by the white kid. I mean, it was just not great effort. But, I yeah. mean, it was late in the game. But other than that, Okay, he got beat on a back shoulder fade that was the most ridiculous throw and catch I've seen, and no corner yeah. in the country's covering that. Other than that, he's playing off coverage. So, yeah. like, Sean Wade gets so much criticism. It's like, exactly. eh, I don't think he played terrible. He played, he had two bad plays. It's a corner. He's going to have two bad plays. Yeah. The wild card, you know, element you're talking about would indicate that he has a strong understanding of what's going on on the field where he needs to be. You know, he, he has that ability, but it just kind of highlights the difficulty of. Um, playing different roles on the field, especially when, you know, uh, in, in any sport, when you have that athletic standout and also like, you know, strategy standout, you want to enable them to do as much as possible. Yeah. And like you said, Zach, I think it comes down to the fact that the best secondary I've, I've seen was when we had Gary on Conley, Marshawn Lattimore and Malcolm hook. I mean, Malik Cooker. I said, Malcolm Malik Cooker. 
um, back there. And part of it was that each of those guys was put in a position to their strengths. Gary Allen was great on that outside on an island by himself. You could rotate rotate um, Lattimore from inside to outside. We had Denzel Ward, too. Who I was going to say, you forgot yeah. Ward. Yeah, we had yeah. Denzel Ward, too, in the slot. But it seemed like in that system, what you had was a ton of extraordinary talent. And the coaches identified the strengths of each of those players and put each of those players in the position that best suited them versus trying to fit, you know, a, a round peg into a square hole. You got to have talent and depth to do that. Yeah. To identify where guys belong and, and let them thrive in whatever role they're best at. If you don't have the, the talented depth, not just talent, not just depth, talented depth. If yeah. you don't have talented depth, you don't have the freedom to do that. They didn't have the freedom to put Sean Wade in the slot or let him yeah. do all the things he's great at. They had to put him outside, and it's yeah. it's a recruiting error. It's nothing else. Yeah, because so, literally there was nobody else that, that could have played the position. Especially when Cameron Brown got hurt. It was like, yeah. oh, well, sorry, Sean, you're out there. Yeah. So what, what happens now if you're the Ohio State coaching staff? Are you making changes personnel-wise? Are you just changing the way you're recruiting? What do you, What do you do to strengthen the defensive side of the ball going into next year? Well, I think they're already doing it and on yeah. the recruiting front. The, the 2022 class, they're, they're, they're probably going to be absolutely loaded in, the, in that signing class, what it looks like. And then it's just development, player development. I mean, that's what Kerry Combs does best. Like if you could take shots at Kerry as a D coordinator, and I mean, some of that's warranted, some of it's probably not. But the one thing you can't take shots as is that, is that he can develop corners. So it's time to get back to the drawing board get in there. And they also need to figure out why, why didn't they make better adjustments? I mean, this is a great learning and growing opportunity for them as a defensive staff yeah. to not only get back to the basics and develop their players and, and, and improve the personnel they have also recruit a little harder, recruit a little better players, but then get in the staff room, lock the door and, and self-reflect, self-evaluate and figure out what you could have done better as a staff and a coach. Yep. And it, who, and I think also it's, this kind of, I don't know what I, how I feel about this, and Zach, you've actually been in the building to experience this, but kind of in the same way that they they coalesce to players in terms of letting the player kind of have the role that they want to play, it seems like we've had the issue at Ohio State where we've got these co-defensive coordinators, co-offensive coordinators. Yeah. Does that just create confusion in the room sometimes when you when you don't have the clear clear responsibility differentiation and you're just giving people roles because that's what we need to get them in the room. Yeah. You know, it, it depends on the personality of the coach. I mean, the, the majority of the time, nah, that doesn't matter. And I know those guys on defense, it doesn't matter to Kerry Combs. It doesn't matter to Greg Madison. It yeah. doesn't matter to any of those guys. Now I've been on staffs with Ed Warner where being the co-offensive coordinator was like something to puff your chest out about yeah. and, and make the other coaches feel little. It's like, bro, you just got that title so they could get you here from Notre Dame. Shut your yeah. mouth. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, yeah. and, yes. and every coach knows that every, every coach that's yeah. not like, that doesn't have like a, a self-esteem issue or, or doesn't have yeah. an incompetence feel incompetent feeling. They know that. Like I knew that I didn't care. Yeah. I, I mean, urban talked about giving me a pass game coordinator. I was like, coach, I don't need, I don't care about that. Like, yeah, I don't need that. Like that's, that's all <laughs> nonsense. Unless I'm calling plays, I'm good. Like yeah. just, Call me the whiteout coach. I don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> so what what um, portion of college coaches are driven by those types of things at a high level? 
Well, the, the problem is this. Uh, those titles matter, I guess, on the exterior. Like when you go to get another job, they're like, well, he was the he was the uh, co-OC at Ohio State. And it's like, no, he wasn't. He didn't call plays. What the, he, But they kind of matter. And, and, and it, what, it, what it matters is what I've found is when you hire coaches, right, you need to have a story. Because when, a, let's say, a new coach gets hired, right, they need to have a narrative to drive home to boosters and administrators on why they hired you, right? And right. when I got the job at Marshall, it was that I was Urban Meyer's right-hand man in special teams. And when Dan Mullen left, Tim Tebow and I put together the game plan to win the national championship against Oklahoma. That was what Doc Holliday told everybody at Marshall, right? Mm -hmm. When I got to Ohio State, it was that that I was a guy that Urban could trust. He knew I was a great young coach, that I would do it his way. I was a legacy. My grandfather was a Buckeye. Like that was the narrative that Urban so drove. You have, to hire to, you have to sell the boosters on the coaching you, hires. You got to sell everybody because everybody wants to feel excited. Like they got a new mm -hmm. coach, a new staff. This staff is better than the last staff, which By it might way, not be. You, you really know what I mean? similar to um, startup world where you're oh. a business world, right? Every executive, I, I, same thing. I'm searching for a story because everyone wants yeah. a justification. It's like, it's not enough that this person could be the best in the industry, but they need to know some other reason yeah. why like why is he innovative and the best thing since sliced bread and that's yeah. what those titles do right they make it so that when you leave and go to i don't know texas to be the oc they're like well he was a co-c at ohio state and they won a national championship it's like okay he really just coached the tackles so yeah. yeah so for you zach as you as you think about like the the coaching experience and really the process of getting all of these different jobs interviewing and all of that are there programs that see through the bs or is that and and you know know how to position things the right way without having to you know have all the story or is that you know very similar to how you need a a, a solid resume you know what i mean you need uh some some sort of background that you know people can buy into like what is what is that experience like I, I think it's just situational. You know, some some head coaches don't care. I mean, they, they'll they'll just hire. I mean, Ryan Day hired Corey Dennis because he was like, you know what? He's the best for the job. I don't really have any I have to tell you anything else. And I mean, I guess Corey did have a, a, a piece of develop or coaching Justin Fields when Ryan was the quarterback coach. But, you know, some coaches don't, like Nick Saban doesn't care. He doesn't yeah. care what your title was. He didn't care what your history was like. He'll get you on the board. He'll fill you out. He'll he'll dive into your brain and 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 get you to talk about you know, fundamentals and things like that. And he'll figure you out like that. And then he can just make a decision. And, uh, but some coaches definitely uh, get hung up on that. And it's usually the coaches that are on the hot seat or in a bad situation, maybe never been a head coach. You know, those are the guys that are like, Oh man, they already aren't that happy with me. Like I better make them happy with this hire. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, it, the, the trust is definitely, it needs to be earned as that head coach. For sure. Yeah. And we're seeing an examples, a great example of this is in Michigan, right? They're hiring guys whose resumes look like they're something, right? But they're not getting whatever that missing element is that matters. Like just because someone coached at Alabama doesn't mean that they're set up to be the offensive coordinator at Michigan, right? And those are kind of the hits and misses that I feel like that is the clear difference between why Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson are able to stay elite is because they've done a really good job of replacing coaches with the right people. Because if you make one mistake there, like hiring Jim Harbaugh, it could. It or could extending cause, Jim Harbaugh or, extending, or not firing Jim Harbaugh. <laughs> right. It, it could lead to a ripple effect because now all of a sudden they're not 
facing accountability for the decisions that they make. So they're going to continue to make similar decisions. Well, and you, just the, the point you're bringing up is you saw it. I think it was two, whenever, two years ago, whenever Josh Gaddis went to Michigan from Alabama, there was yeah. a public dispute between he and Mike Loxley on who called the plays. And it's like, what are we, like teenage girls? Like, like I know for a fact, I, I'm the guy that got offered the job at Alabama before Josh Gaddis took it, right? Yeah. That job was to be the assistant OC and help Mike Loxley. I know Mike Loxley as well as I know any coach. He's brilliant. He called every play. Like, I know what the situation was. And this poor guy in Michigan's trying to pound the table, like, no, I called the plays. Like, I'm a good play caller. Like, shut up, bro. No, you didn't. <laughs> like, and and that's that's the reality of Michigan. They had two two coordinators that never called well, Ed called plays, but he liked to forget that, and so would we. Um he got hired way. because he was at Ohio State. That's the only reason he got that job. While we're while we're talking about Michigan, I just I do want to say, you know, as an Ohio State fan, it was rough to see us lose like that, but you know, I also built a lot of respect for that team we played last night. However, I had some Michigan fans trying to talk some trash. And I think the thing I appreciate the most is that it didn't even register because that team is in such an abysmal place compared yeah. to where Ohio State's at. It's like the trash talk doesn't even work until you feel a team that gets over two wins. You know what you're I mean? You're talking about a, you're talking shit about a team that's playing in the national championship. I know. How After beating Clemson, by the way, a great win for the program. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, Michigan hasn't even made a playoff, let alone a – I can't remember if they've played a game outside of the outback. I don't think they've ever made the playoff. They've never made it to Indianapolis for the Big Ten Championship. Yeah. Like, they've never even played wow. for the Big Ten. Yeah. it's That just goes to show, man. I mean – I truly feel sadly for Michigan fans because now all they can do is cheer for our failures. And it's like, by the way, if Michigan was in the championship, I do believe we would all be rooting for them from a Big Ten allegiance standpoint. No, I wouldn't be. You wouldn't be? <laughs> no. I would if I would if if they had beaten us decisively in the game. I think I would have no problem I, with that. I would want that. I want them to be good. You know? Yeah. But I don't. I feel like and it applies more to basketball. If I see Michigan basketball doing well, March Madness. I like it, but there's just something about Michigan football. I just, I, I don't want to see them do well. If it's Michigan versus anyone in the SEC, bro, I'm taking, I'm, I'm picking Michigan every time. See, here's, here's the thing about it, right? It's easy to say that when you're the better team, right? Like if, if, if you, if Ohio State beats Michigan and then Michigan goes and plays Auburn in the bowl game. It's a lot easier to root for them, right? You already beat them. You know they're the little brother. Yeah. Now, if Ohio State lost to Michigan. That'd be a hard pill to swallow for but a lot I'll, of Buckeyes. Say, you know, in basketball, we do we do root for them because they tend to be better. You know, yeah, but it's two football schools. That's yeah, like, that's like saying we root for Michigan's rowing team. Like, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I do enjoy beating them, but I'm I'm just putting the point out there that uh, my allegiance lies with the Big Ten over anything else. I'm not gonna. You'll never see me if it was like Michigan versus like uh, George as a team. I I root against strongly. If it was Michigan versus Georgia, I'm rooting for Michigan, a hundred percent. That's there. There are a lot of Big Ten fans that take that position. And speaking of basketball, Thad Mata would be very offended um, at you saying that Ohio. Is he still? Play. By the way, is he still our coach? No, he's not. But okay, it, the dominance that he had in in basketball, um, he did a great job during that run. Uh, yeah, was pretty impressive. And I yeah, still put a couple guys in the NBA from Columbus. 
Yeah, yeah he did. He did a great he, job. He, he's he's one of my favorite guys I've ever met. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's, I went to a Kenny Chesney concert with him, Mike Vrabel, Luke Fickle, and all of our wives, and he was the coolest dude I've ever met. <laughs> awesome. He was, I, you know, just talking about how Ohio State was – and this is – they just, I think they just went to the final four or whatever. Yeah. yeah, I think they just went to the final four and we're in a limo going to Kenny Chesney. And he's like, I'm like, coach, you know, really, you know, excited for what you're doing with the basketball program. He's like, ah, shit, just trying to win some games until they fire me. I was like, what are you talking? <laughs> what? He, I, like, I was shocked. And he looked at me. He was like, they fired every coach that's ever coached football or basketball here in Ohio State. Like, they're <laughs> going to fire me, too. It's just a matter of when. There's <laughs> like, a hell of a way to approach your job, man. Yeah. I think so. The news and notes segment, which we recorded before this and, you know, will air after this actually touches on this sort of detachment being a very good thing. So, yeah. you know, interesting point. But what was where were you during the whole like club club trill era with Mark Titus? Was it Mark? Was it? My, I don't know. When was that? It'll be before. Oh, nine. Oh, eight. Yeah, no, I was, I was at Florida. So yeah. we had this basketball player who went super viral. This is like the age of like the start of virality because he was a like bench warmer. You know, he would come in garbage time. So it'd be yeah. like minutes played would be one and every other stat would be zero. So yeah. because there were nine or like he would have zero of everything. So because there were nine zeros, he started this you know thing called Club Trill, went super viral, took on a, you know, a life of its own. Yeah, now he's a writer for I think it's the Athletic. Yeah. For oh, he's on the Athletic. Yeah, he's he's a good writer too. But you know that was the Ohio State basketball era that you know, I grew up in and and just fell in love with. I mean Evan Turner, Jared Solinger. Oh yeah, oh yeah, great. Times. We were really good. We were yeah. really good and better than Michigan at basketball too. Yeah. Well, they, when they we want it, to be, we can to be. Talk about basketball, but it's like hey. You know, over the last 10, 15 years, I'd say Ohio State has a better record in the Big Ten than Michigan overall. They made it to a final, though, so I think that's that's why people give them credit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that was, a, that was a good team, too. They had Tim Hardaway Jr. Yeah. Flo hey, Ohio State made it to a final in, what, 06? Dude, we don't talk about that year, Zach. We don't talk about that. You know, that is not a memorable year for us. We've Joe, Kim, Noah, and Al Horford, right, on your team? Yeah, oh yeah, and I mean, Corey Brewer. And Dude, Corey that's, Brewer and that's one other guy that went to the team. Yeah. Name one player from that Ohio State team that lasts in the NBA more than you know two years, right? Like Greg Oden was the guy. Mike Conley is the only one that oh yeah, Conley was uh, we had yeah, three first guy. round picks off that team. It was Conley, Daquan Cook, and Greg Oden. And Daquan Cook won a three point championship, so we'll give him some credit. <laughs> <laughs> he was out of the league in a few years. But that team definitely was just Florida was a year ahead of us in terms of de development. That's why they yeah. made it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean the recruiting to have you know two guys who had ten plus year, but three guys right who had ten plus year careers in the NBA. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Man. Damn well, Florida. That, that that brings the end. It kind of brings an end to our our college football season here, guys. A mm. fascinating one to say the least. You know, a lot happened. I mean, what would you say your takeaways uh, from this season of, of eventfulness? <laughs> um, 
I think it's it's always going to be year, a year with an asterisk, you know, because of everything that happened. And look at what happened. Nobody died. Nobody. Everything's everybody's fine. Yeah. Like they should have just put these protocols in place back in June and they should have just rode the whole season. And it, there would be no asterisks. Devontae Smith would have won the Heisman with a full country playing football. You know, it's just it's unfortunate, but I, it, it it fits the brand of 2020. Right. And it, and so. I think it's a, a great time to just move forward. Just forget about that shit and move to 2021 season. <laughs> yeah, and and we completed it, right? The season yeah. happened. We we didn't get nothing. Ohio State fans, you weren't you didn't lose anything from outside of the experience of going to a game. But we had a six-game season and made it to the national championship game. Overall, that's a successful year um, for us in a year that a lot of people, including that team up North had a lot of problems. Um, so let's, let's, I think you're right. Like we got through this shit. And, yeah. Yeah. and you know what? We, we crowned a national champion, the rightful national champion on a football field. You know what yeah. I mean? That, that was my biggest concern. It's like, how can you say Alabama is a national champ if Ohio state doesn't play? Or what if Oregon is actually, you know, the, the team that's going to be great this year, we got to watch everybody play. We got the right teams in. We let the right teams play it out, and the best team won. Agreed. Agreed. And, you know, I, I, I'll I, say from my perspective, I am so grateful to be an Ohio State fan. It's just such a well-run program, great kids, great team. And, you know, to any of those players that are making that leap, I know there's that extra year of eligibility, but if you need help with your off-the-field business, you know to hit up V, you know to hit up Partha, you know to hit up Zach. Like, you know, you that that's like that community that is around Ohio State football that helps not only to make the program so great, but to help the players, you know, sustain once they leave the program and do other things. I mean, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of, man. And, you know, yeah. living in the South, like it's not like that at Alabama. It's not like that at any yeah. of the SEC schools. Yeah, that no, was definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. And who would have said? I want to go back to see when the last time that the Browns football season was still going and still had hope after Ohio State season ended. So, oh, again, no. still for 2020 <laughs> as it gets, but I'm oh, not- well, <laughs> hey, if 2020 is going to, if they're really going to finish right, the Browns will win it all. <laughs> I know. I know. That, that, that Steelers game was definitely looked like there was a power greater working because we just dominated them yeah. hey you know what if they beat the chiefs i will i'll buy in yeah if they beat the chiefs yeah if they beat the chiefs i will also ju- jump right into that band <laughs> <laughs> hey i i i'm I, I like measured steps just like with ohio state we made the playoffs in year one with Ryan day we yep. made the final in year two so year three is the Super Bowl. The fact that we've gone 26 years without even seeing a playoff win, um, this is a great first step. So if we play the Chiefs competitively and we beat them, that means we're ahead of we're ahead of the timeline, right? Oh, way ahead of schedule. If that happens. Yeah. Or, or it means Patrick Mahomes didn't play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That, that true. Maybe catch a catch a little uh injury here this week small minor one right i don't want to wish covid on anybody but if somebody <laughs> has to get it let's make it patrick mahomes <laughs> yeah, exactly man what all right guys it's been a lot of fun this year um we've had a great season i'm sure we're going to continue to talk about recruitment and it's a it's a 365 day a year thing now that we have we have a draft coming up so 
definitely enjoyed this year and getting through it and, and talking football and being able to talk football um, this year in 2020 and 2021 with you guys. For sure. Appreciate it, guys. Show the Pilot Boys some love by getting some of our exclusive merch at shop.pilotboys.com. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Hey, guys, this is Partha. You might know me as a Pilot Boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. Lasso is a high-performance lifestyle brand that makes a Lasso Sock 2.0, the most functional sock ever to help you stay moving on any adventure you choose. Lasso uses patented compression technology with scientifically proven ankle stability to support key ligaments and tendons as well as moisture wicking materials and built-in strike padding. So every single step is stable, soft, and cool. Lasso socks are also used to treat foot and ankle conditions like plantar fasciitis, Achilles pain, ankle soreness, circulation issues, and more. Check them out at lassogear.com or at lassogear on social media. Undo Media is proud to be the production partner for the Pilot Boys. Storytelling is what they do. From video production, podcasting, and consulting, Undo Media's focus is on telling your story. Find out why four Emmys and hundreds of clients will back up why you should contact Undo Media for your next project. Look them up at undomedia.com. And welcome to another edition of News and Notes. So we took the extremely positive feedback we got from our last News and Notes special where we did things a little bit differently. You know, we got one tweet. Um, yeah. It's better than our typical zero or one angry tweet. So, yeah. you know, we're trending up, V. We are trending up. What I want to know is uh, it seems like we have a lot of listeners. Um, I don't know if you guys are on social media, um, but definitely follow us if you are on social media at pilot boys podcast um on uh on on the social media platform of your choosing and and follow us and engage with us we definitely want to hear your guys's feedback more more often yeah 100 percent. we want to make this you know as enjoyable of a listen whether you're on your run or working out or whatever you're doing when you're listening to this you know let us know how we can make this more interesting for you yep Let's get into it, man. What do you want to talk about? What are we talking about today? Well, this week was a weird week. Uh, you know, the Capitol gets stormed. That, you know, something I never thought I would say, to be honest, in my lifetime with yeah, what we're taught about secret service and security and government security. It seemed like I was watching some of the videos. It just seemed like relatively easy to break into the Capitol. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think has stood out um, is is just the relative ease. And then you contrast that with what was a much more peaceful and less dangerous um, protest with Black Lives Matter earlier in the summer. And you saw what they did in terms of protecting the, the Capitol before um, that even happened. And what we tend to believe about the security of our federal government and our buildings um, to, that just didn't seem to exist there. And quite frankly, the truth was that a lot of these police officers and people who were tasked to protect it did not feel threatened by these people. Um, and so, and actually probably supported some of their thoughts because you saw some of the videos and pictures you saw of them just kind of like helping them get into the building and imposing posing with them and just breaking their line and letting people in. It was clear that there was a lot of sympathizers within the people who were tasked. And that's, 
that's obviously always a dangerous side effect of any coup, which is what I want to call this. I don't want to mislabel this thing anything other than what it was, which was a coup against the U.S. government and the structure that's been in place since 1776. We've never had anything like this happen in our history. Um, it's just fascinating. You're you know. right, though. That's a, It's an important distinction to point out. It was a protest till they went in the building. Then yes. it became a coup. Yes. Yes. And and that's, you know, we've never, <laughs> can't think of this <laughs> since the British Revolution when we had Paul Revere and people running around, Americans breaching and taking over a federal building. It's, it's crazy because, you know, I always try to find a counter argument to everything, right? Yeah. This is just one of those situations that, you know, you look at it and it's like, yeah, I was telling you, V, I, I got my driver's license in California yesterday. Yep. They had me fill out the political party. I put no party because, yep. you know, I think parties are bad, right? I think they, yeah. they cause a lot of problems. But in this situation, there's no two ways about it. Like the second you storm a government building full of people that, you know, are not protected really in any yep. major way we should talk about whether they should be protected because i think that's relatively obvious but you know the second you cross that line you are committing a crime yeah and you know you should be treated as if you're committing a crime yeah and you know the thing here i think both of us are kind of on the same page it's easy to let our emotions dictate our response to this but that is exactly what the the core crux of America's issues right now. You have everyone kind of responding emotionally and without logic. The truth is, you know, you can't just listen to a crazy man who's obsessed with power um, talk about how an election got stolen from him without any evidence to support those statements. But We've gotten to a point now where if you look at our digital sphere and the type of content that people can access, it's very easy to trigger people. The content that's being put out is meant to embolden and trigger thoughts that just aren't okay, you know, and these people in a lot of ways, I feel sorry for them because they are the ones that are committing the crimes. They are the ones that are going to face consequences for this. While, you know, this guy sits in his, for lack of better word, ivory tower um, and just eggs people on saying, hey, I'm going to go with you and then retreats back to the White House. These things happen. It reminds me a lot of like what happens in a lot of these kind of rises to power of fascist type leaders, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I think something to point out, I see a lot of Trump supporters get characterized as, you know, poor white dumb people. Yeah. And an emotional reaction has nothing to do with your intelligence. It has yeah. everything to do with your command of, of your own mind and of how you think and react. So, you know, the, the other example I want to put out there is actually somebody I really like, Jordan Peterson, who yeah. has some really well-argued points. He's a great debater. You know, he furthers the conversation all of the time. And... Over the last few years, he rose to prominence because of a stance he took about um, transgender pronouns being legislated in Canada. And he took a very strong stance that, yeah, I mean, you know, it could, it could have easily been like, it, it could have easily been a more moderate stance he took, 
right? Where people were upset. So just to give context, people are upset at Jordan Peterson because he said he wouldn't, he didn't support the use of legislating pronouns. And people would say, well, would you call somebody who is transgender in your class by the pronoun they wanted to be called? He said, no. And they said, why? You know, like, why are you being such a dick, essentially? Like, why wouldn't you call somebody by what they want to be called? And he would say, I can call them, you know, whatever I want. And in a other personal interviews where it wasn't like on the debate stage, essentially, he would say, obviously, you know, I'm a nice person and I like people and I want to be liked by people. So they asked me to call them something, I'll call them something. But for the sake of the argument, I wanted to make a point as to why we shouldn't legislate. But yeah. what that created was, you know, this wave of like, I would say like the red pill type of, of guys, you know what I mean? Yeah. Who are looking for arguments that are yeah, anti-progressive, um, not for any reason other than to be able to win arguments against folks they know that, you know, they, they are frustrated by or they don't understand or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, the reason I'm, I'm painting this whole picture is that that demographic tends to consider themselves extremely intellectual. The followers of Jordan Peterson, you know, the Ben yeah. Shapiro world, that whole community of uh, people, which they call the intellectual dark web online. Yeah. And that same community, you know, however intelligent they may be, are extremely prone to emotional reactions. Yeah. And they look to logic and they look to facts and they look to data as ways to, you know, dazzlingly you know shock somebody they're arguing with so that person has nothing to argue back so they can win the argument but they're missing the fact that you know the argument wasn't necessary in the first place and like debate has its place an emotional reaction you know can have its place for example in art or in sport is a great place for emotional reaction but when it comes to policy when it comes to politics when it comes to trying to actually improve the place in which we live emotional reactions tend to have dangerous consequences. And that's what we saw at the Capitol. Yeah. I mean, and that's also the culture, the, the unfortunate side effect of the culture that we're in right now, where everybody is being triggered. Like it's, it's, it's part of it is that groupthink is something that's very easy to execute. Um, and cre to create groups to rally around certain themes is is fairly easy to do. Um, and you, if you look at our country, you know the truth is we do live in a country of red states and blue states. We do live in a country where no matter what the candidate, who the candidate is, uh, a great majority of people are only going to vote along their party lines. They don't look and say, is this candidate a representative of our our morals and our principles? Yeah. Um, and the truth is that Trump, in a lot of ways, is the opposite of everything, the quote-unquote conservative model of uh, embodies, right? Because he's about as liberal of a person as as lawless and ruleless of a person uh, as, as you can possibly have represent your party but still yet people are triggered a by emotions and triggered by dogmatic principles and viewpoints in this country and that's why you have people voting along party lines you have 77 million people in america 
cast their vote and said, we agree with who Donald Trump is and what he represents. And yeah, some of those people are definitely cuckoos and crazy, and you can label them that. But some of those people are nefarious in their reasoning too. Um, and I, I hope that the takeaway from the Capitol is, and kind of what I always pointed out was there's a danger that we're not seeing here with Trump. Yes, he is exposing a lot of things that I feel like needed to be exposed in our political system and our, our people, but there's always a danger with him being the leader of this movement because he has no sense of a moral compass and what's right or wrong. It's always about attention, attention, attention. And I think that that is a synthesis of where we're at as a country. If you look at what people are looking for at a younger and younger age, we're taught to do things to draw attention to ourselves versus how do we push forward an agenda that's for the greater good or this, this civic duty that doesn't exist really um, in, in our country anymore. Well, and I want to point out something else too, because this, you know, the, the Trump supporter characterization, I think, you know, can be accurate for some, but I also want to point out that there's a significant, I'd say anti-establishment vote that went his way. That's how he won. That's really how he won. Um, You know, you, you and I, we, we speak frankly on this. The truth is that Obama coming to power was a terrible thing for for minorities in a lot of ways because there was a reaction to it, a visceral reaction, not from all, you know, and I'm not, I hate when we characterize, like, just say white people, but there was definitely a racial reaction to a man named Barack Hussein Obama being elected to office, not just from a race standpoint, but also from an established political power standpoint of who the hell is this guy coming yeah, out? He of was nowhere. an outsider in a major yep. way. Yep. Coming in and, and telling us in our establishment, because the truth is, and, and we've talked about this too, is the federal government is a power structure and everybody within that structure is fighting to maintain power. We have this idea that these people are fighting for the people and that's what they're supposed to be doing. But at the end, our system is which which we all protect ourselves. And so when this outsider came into power, there was a fearful reaction to that that I think carried over to the election and the reason that Trump won, which is people were looking for people were frustrated with the political power structure as it existed based on those eight years and nothing getting done really. And so Trump came in and just catered to i'm an outsider i'm a businessman i'm successful and people gravitated toward that and i think there are a lot of people who actually voted for him thinking that we needed to rewrite or rebalance the shift and make these political traditional power strong political people feel some pressure and feel like hey your power isn't guaranteed either yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a spot on analysis, man. And, you know, as you, as you look at the entirety of all of these complex dynamics, I think when you look at the Capitol riot and, you know, protest, um, it's, it's a reaction by a very small number of people 
that we magnify and talk about and, you know, make it look like the country's falling apart. In reality, it's, you know, 0.001% of people that are choosing to act yeah. in that way, right? Also, you know, you can't throw out mob mentality, which usually strikes whenever big crowds of people come together and, you know, people end up doing things they don't anticipate doing you could say that with the riots you could say that with you know the one in the capital you could say it on the other side with um the riots after all the shootings right that's you know very very typical stuff given human nature but yeah. you, the, the big piece especially if you live more as if you consider yourself more as like a, a centrist in today's day and age or really more of a moderate is that your ideology to your point that you were uh, touching on earlier v your ideology as to who you are cannot be decided by the extrinsic factors around you. So yeah. you should not choose your identity based on the potential, you know, categories you can fit in. You can't it's not A is Democrat, B is Republican, C, you know, libertarian, yeah. D independent. That's not your only four options. It goes yeah. the other way around. And these parties that want you to say you're a Democrat, that want you to say you're a Republican, need to work to gain your trust because each one of us as an individual has the agency to put our name, our energy, our voice behind a cause or a group of people that stand for what we stand for. But without knowing what we stand for individually, we have no ability to make that decision. And the problem that happens in America a lot of the time is that we're all pushed to identify with a political party. I remember in elementary school, people would be like, hey, what what party? Yeah. Are, like, are your parents Republicans or Democrats? You know, and yeah. in Ohio, everyone's Republicans. And I mean, dude, like... I'm like six. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. In high school, like you're you're mad at me because the Affordable Care Act got passed. Like yeah. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So there's so many of these like categories that you're told to fit into in life, and you have to determine who you are first, and then the categories that you fit into will then fit because they're a reflection of who you are. It doesn't go the other way around. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's the old saying, people are sheep. And the truth is that it's it's challenging to challenge. Like you said, the structure is set for you to find a group or a tribe that you fit into, right? Part of the reason, like you said, when you were six, people were asking was to determine if you fit into their tribe or not. And yeah. they didn't even know, like these things are trained and taught. You know, I have friends, a lot of friends in in, in Houston who are Republicans, you know, and they, they aligned with Republican, Republican uh, principles. But then if you, once you challenge them and you make them see that even some of the ways that, in which they live aren't in agreement with the principles by which they state that they support, you realize that this is stuff that they've been indoctrinated into, you know, race isn't taught hate. I mean, race isn't natural. These studies are extensive, right? Like kids, when they're babies, they don't look at a black baby and a white baby and a Hispanic baby and Asian baby and differentiate them. That is taught, you know? Um, and, and I honestly do believe that these political parties teach division and teach oh, yeah. in a way that, you know, even if you align, like I would say that I lean more democratic than I do more Republican. If I were to say I leaned one way or the other, mm -hmm. but because of that, being a centrist, I'm labeled by both sides as the opposite. Oh, and yeah. I'm sure you probably face some of those same issues. Yeah. hundred percent. 
that is the problem is that people are not taught that it's okay for other people to have views that are independent. They're not aligned with groupthink or a, a set of principles that everyone else aligns with. And those things are taught, you know, yeah. and, and unfortunately we have this grand experiment, which I call America, you know, we're labeled the United States of America, but that's the complete opposite of what we are. Different states have different rules. Different cities have different rules and laws that may not be in line with the federal laws or federal standards. Um, and it just creates a very unique place, yeah. honestly, that, that we live in where everyone's encouraged to be an individual, but everyone's trained to kind of fit in to a structure that's been set up for the power to maintain itself. 100%. And you know what this means for you as a listener, as the day-to-day person on your quest for whether it's financial success or happiness or spiritual growth, what it means is that the entire world around you is going to try and put you into a category. And your journey is entirely dependent on your ability to essentially you know, create some silence around yourself, create yeah. the mental space and clarity to identify who you are, what you believe and why you believe that and live by those principles. And the world will then sort itself around you. In fact, you know, in, in this world, what's interesting about it is it reacts to you in the way you tell it to. So if you're looking for identity outward, then the world will impose an identity onto you. If you yeah. look for identity inward, the world will listen and will build around the identity that you're establishing once you communicate that out. Yeah. And so for the for the regular person, I mean, that's that's what you got to think about every day. You know, that's how you you become successful. That's how you build your own identity. That's how you do all of the things you want to do in this world. And you know, buying into a political ideology or buying into any sort of community and trying to live blindly by the rules of that community is almost 100% guaranteed to be a recipe for either failure or just, you know, mediocrity. That is, that is why we're in the place that we're in, in America. The thing is that you can, you can create equality by law, but you cannot create equality by interpretation. Right. And, you know, people say, okay, what are, wh why do, why do police officers, um, stereotype African Americans more than any, because that's what they're trained to do. You know, that is what they are trained to do. And at a certain point, we have to ask ourselves, we, we attack symptoms, right? We see another police officer commit an, another racially biased attack on a minority right and our responses to that officer versus the actual root cause of the problem which the officer is a small cog in the machine that creates that officer's racially biased reactions right yeah. um and it's so the same perspective we, we have with healthcare by the way one yeah. of my biggest pet peeves we don't need to solve a lot of these diseases. We already solved them. It's called yeah. making healthy decisions when you're young before you get the disease. Or if you get it, make healthy decisions after the fact and clean up your body and live a healthier life. We have yeah. all of the answers we need, whether it's philosophically or whether it's physically, to create the, the lives we want. I'll ask you this question. Do you feel like 
this this kind of contradiction almost in our culture between everybody being encouraged to have an identity and to be themselves um considering the structure of rules that are actually set up do you think that that's a that's just a losing proposition i think that it was probably easier to have an individual voice in colonial times than it is now because of the internet, because of the amount of stimuli we get on a day-to-day basis. So I think, I think it's more a factor of technology than it is of people. Yeah. You know, should rules change for, for current society is, is really, you know, one of the bigger questions that's out there. And uh, I think it's creating, changes to rules based on human behavior in in recent history versus allowing humans to adapt to the way that life is changing. Um, You know, I just don't think you can change the rules fast enough before people change again. Yep. You know, and that's, that's very interesting. And I think another part of this in terms of accountability, we've talked about this too, is that the people who are drawing the rules and making the rules, if they're not being responsible and how they are executing their plan. And I'm speaking directly to the purveyors of the internet, right? The face, these social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook. It's great that they're banning Donald Trump now, but they knew kind of the dangers and the potential dangers of, of his rhetoric and some of that rhetoric and some of these, these groups well before this happened, Right. And the question is, but they knew that that also is what was the metric that made their platform successful, which is how do we get people on here and get them engaged and keep them on here? So they weren't necessarily thinking about society. They're thinking about themselves and they were the ones that are creating the rules. You know, I, I do think, you know, I admire Mark Zuckerberg in a lot of ways, but sometimes I feel like he pleads ignorance to things that he's not ignorant to at all it's actually intentional once they evaluate data and they evaluate people's psychologies through all the metrics that they have that a lot of this stuff is done intentionally because it has helped make them some of the richest people in the world so it's easy to not see the dangers of what you're doing when you're being rewarded for it and you're setting the rules and then you have a government that's always behind technology in itself is advancement right? Advancement of things. And it's happening at such a rapid pace. How does 70-year-old Mitch McConnell and 80-year-old Nancy Pelosi, the people who are set to devise rules and laws, how are they going to keep up with that? Yeah, that's a really good point, V. What do you think about the role of a tech CEO in terms of setting the rules? And what's the responsibility to create wealth versus the social responsibility to think about the consequences of your actions and then how do you how do you think about misuse of a platform beyond its intended use how much should a tech ceo have to think about that i mean they're living with the same kind of brain confusion that everyone in this country lives with right because you have a constitution you have a set of rules but capitalism says break the rules Survival right. of the fittest, create your own rules. You don't build to, Facebook without breaking yeah. a whole bunch of rules. 
And, and, you know, and that's why you see all the litigation and lawsuits that these companies face on their way up. But it's like, it is kind of like the confusing part of being in America for me specifically, because it's like, on one hand, um, I know that if I could think like Mark Zuckerberg, I would be wealthier than I am, you know, incredibly, because I know I could, because I know how his mind works and that you can manipulate society and people to advance yourself financially. But are you thinking about your responsibility? And I think that there is a responsibility that these people need to face, especially somebody like Mark Zuckerberg. He's one of the smartest people on this earth. There's no way that he can just continue to plead ignorance and say, oh, I didn't know this was happening on my platform. I didn't know that there are groups out here talking about taking out the government. I just created the platform and therefore it's free speech. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, yeah. I mean, you you make an interesting point there, V. And I think it's the reason you and I are both drawn toward building brands or toward, you know, the sports industry, for example, far more yeah. than infrastructure plays like a Facebook. Yeah. And I call Facebook infrastructure because it's a way of using the internet and building essentially, you know, a way for people to communicate. They're not dictating communication or at least, you know, they don't want to. They'd prefer to be a platform, not a publisher. But yeah. the the point of it is like there's I see what what, you know, Twitter is and Facebook is as like the railroad tracks of the internet, right? Yeah. And then there's the people who, you know, build communities and like look to create some sort of outcome in people that they directly connect with. And I think you and I probably fall more in that second box. But that first box is what makes the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and the Carnegies. But it's also the box that leads to the corruption and, you know, the tremendous amount of wealth when you focus on those infrastructure, infrastructure type builds. So that, do you have any, insights into the personality type that it takes to build a company like that and you know how you differ from that well i think you have to a lot of these people are extremely narcissistic they don't realize it it's a natural disposition that they have you have to be are your goals there are some people like i would look at albert einstein and say that he shared his gifts unselfishly because he really was trying to solve a lot of the mysteries of humankind. He wasn't just thinking about how am I going to become a billionaire? By the way, that's how I feel about Elon. And Elon, Elon definitely shares in that in terms of wanting to solve the world's problems. But then you can look at some of his decision-making and say, this is an extremely narcissistic guy who wants everyone to be paying it. It's not much different than Trump. Actually, well, you see, he wants people to be listening to him and what he has to say. You see the personal life track record, and you know that that tells it all. Yep, yep. And sometimes there the the genius happens at the crossroads between you know being psychotic and being brilliant. You know, you see that a lot of these people when you look into their lives, a lot of these people that we admire now, they had a lot of fucked up problems. Well, and I, that's, a, that's a point that I think everybody should hear again. Every single person has a lot of fucked up problems. Yep. It's, you know, 
Elon's are in his personal life. Like every single, some people have it in their professional. Some people have it, you know, in all these different areas, but everyone has their demons. Yeah. But they guide you to your point. You know, narcissism can be a tool. Ego right. can be a tool. You know, I, I, I wouldn't feel, uh, I consider myself a recovering narcissist. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> I would not be where I am if I did not have a mightier than thou perspective when I started my business. I wouldn't yeah. have I wouldn't have been able to get through it. Yeah, and I think there's 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 something to be said and I think both of us if we were to look back, I went through a huge long phase of maturity before I've gotten to the point where I'm at now where I feel like I have enough perspective to not just understand myself, but understand my interaction with the world and how the world responds to me. And I think sometimes with this kind of narcissistic mindset, it's a word that's thrown out a lot. But the truth is these are just people who very early on determine what they want to do with their lives and they don't let anything stop them from getting there. And sometimes not letting the world stop you means that there's going to be some collateral damage along the way. And Trump is a direct result of social media platforms and the dangers. There is That guy has zero qualifications to be the president of the United States. But what he did have was the ability to rally enough people to vote for him and then also keep those people who vote along strictly along party lines and say, I don't, I, almost every Republican that, that I, longstanding Republican that I talk to, they say, I don't really like the guy, but, you know, he pushes forward the Republican agenda and therefore I will deal with whatever the collateral damage is. And I, 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 it comes down to America needs to accept who we are. We glorify the Elon Musks, the Donald Trumps. We don't glorify people. The people who are just living by a strict moral code, they're not getting ahead. Let's just be yeah. honest. They're not getting ahead. No, um, and you know, I mean, why why should they get ahead? Right? Yeah. Like what what are what is there, you know what I mean? Your dysfunctions have to cause you to make decisions that benefit you more than others for some period of time to get ahead. Or you have to create so much value for other people that you create the income and the wealth, you know, to then be in be in a song, strong position. And you see that with like motivational speakers, for example. Yep, yep, yep. And and those people, you know, and and it's funny we've we've talked about some of these motivational speakers too. Is it's like early on, people are very supportive of them. But then as they start to experience the fruits of that attention, they change. Oh, yeah. Not only do they change, but the people around me go from supporters to haters, you know? Well, and I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I'm sure you've gone through this personally too, V. Like, there's a point in your journey where you go from underdog. I'd say this is what I classified it as to a friend this weekend. You go from the oppressed to the oppressor. Yeah, but you realize when you flip to the oppressor that you're not trying to oppress anybody. It's just a function of the natural cycle of things. Yeah. And there are, to your point, some people who are trying to oppress people. Yeah. But my belief is more along the lines that 
most people are not intentionally hurting others. It's just a function of their role and the way that they're living their life to make money in today's society as a function of the character traits that that requires. You know, to your point earlier, you end up not being the best steward for everybody around you. Yep. And in essence, value you create rather than it being for those close to you is for, you know, many, many customers, right? Yeah. Which is a great legacy to leave behind, a great thing to do. And, you know, everybody doing something positive should feel very proud of what they're doing, but they should also acknowledge the changes that are happening in themselves that are going to create essentially, you know, an, another pattern of oppression on somebody else. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 so hard sometimes when you are reflective and you you realize, you know, it's easy to try to live by a pr- principle of do no harm, but it's hard to get ahead by constantly thinking that way and saying do no harm, right? Yeah. Because a lot of this happens just through sheer ignorance. They don't realize the consequences. They're not thinking about the the collateral damage. And I don't necessarily think that all of these people are are bad people. You know, yeah. I don't think, I think Jeff Bezos has is, is been brilliant in understanding the internet and creating a structure to make people's lives easier, right? It didn't necessarily mean that he was sitting there saying, I want the entire world addicted to Amazon like it's a drug. But as a result of him solving that problem, human beings and human psychology dictated the results that were driven by his his company and his concept and his idea if there wasn't support from people for him he wouldn't be the richest man in the world right yeah. and so is the problem jeff bezos the one individual or is the problem lie in the millions and millions of customers that adhere to and support his business you know yeah a hundred percent you know i was um I was having a conversation with my sister and she was um, expressing that she was not a fan of Elon Musk because he was preventing the unionization of his employees. Yeah. At the same time, for a company that's losing money, I can understand why you wouldn't want to increase wages, right? Yeah. And there's this catch-22 there because you're already doing the thing that's good. You're already manufacturing in the States. You know what I mean? He's not putting his plan. He's like doing the things that everyone's asking him to do, and it's still not enough. So you also have to consider are the expectations we place on these tech leaders, right? Or these, I'd say, like these um, economic impact makers, are the expectations superhuman? They are. And I think in a lot of ways, we've displaced the responsibility of our governments right onto individual private citizens who don't have the responsibility they're working if if you don't like how how they're operating that's what i'm saying is like why isn't our government investing in staying ahead and in understanding these technologies as they develop and not just leaving these people up to their own devices yeah you know? um and then also what what you said another point that you made is that's 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 fascinating about holding these people accountable is that if you look at the history of unions and what they did to this country they are equally as responsible for the degradation and destruction 
of our society. Suddenly manufacturing jobs that had a certain economic impact, like working on an assembly line for a car company, it became more expensive for these companies to employ these people than the return that they were getting on them. And what is that? Again, the same thing that happens in all power structures. That's why communism and socialism doesn't work. Someone had to operate these unions. And once these unions became structured and there was a power structure established within the unions, the people at the top of that power structure took for granted the people that they represented and it became about them and not the union. And that's a big part of the reason that we have the employment issues that we have in America and why so many things got outsourced to other countries is people fought without actually understanding, okay, what is my actual value to society? Yeah, yeah that's a great point, man. That's a really great point. Just to kind of <clears throat> wrap this, you know, tie back up and, you know, I actually would love to go deeper down the union rabbit hole, but just, just kind of wrap it back up. I mean, I think one of the key things that drives this belief is society's attachment to money yep. here in the West. We just care so freaking much yeah love money but it splits into two factions there's some people who love money well let's let's say four groups okay some people who love money and have it some people who love money and don't have it people who hate money and have it yeah people who hate money and don't have it right so there is no reason to love or hate money it's a tool in society do you hate hammers you know, it's an irrational distaste, right? Driven by media's portrayal of people with money. Yeah. From when you're a kid. Like how how often is the bad guy a rich guy in every movie? Yeah. You know? Always, right? Yeah. Because we don't like rich people. But let's think about who's writing the scripts. It's people who are in Hollywood, one of the most abusive industries to work in, yep. trying to get their scripts green lighted. And just pissed at all the few people in an industry driven by scarcity at the few people who have control, money, and power and work to preserve it, as we saw with you know, Mr. Weinstein, yep. the mess of an industry that that creates. And so the people living in what you could call the black mirror of capitalism, which is how entertainment works, I mean, those are the people telling us how capitalism works in America. And you know, I, I can tell you from a perspective outside of that space that it's not like that in every industry you know and you don't have to dislike money you don't have to you don't have to have a feeling at all about the financial tools that exist to help you succeed but in order to actually achieve success you have to understand how to utilize money in a meaningful way to convey positive impact yeah and that's the piece that i feel like because we were talking about earlier, V, we were talking about, you know, the character traits that it takes to make money, right? And, you know, I just want to throw it out there that you can make a lot of money being a really genuine person by being clever and understanding money. But what it requires is the mind, what I would call like the mind of a warrior. And that means, you know, people confuse that Oh, if you fire people, you're a bad person, right? If you, you know, outsource, you're a bad person. Like whatever the I don't know. I'm just trying to think of things think of things in capitalism that have negative context. But you're vilified for making decisions that 
end up cutting costs oftentimes, right? And a lot of the time, those are the right decisions to make. And emotionally, we all struggle to make those. But a true warrior, and this is what Hinduism preaches, is this concept of like, you know, you have to do what you must do to like live your destiny. If you are not comfortable doing the difficult, emotionally difficult things, but, you know, rationally correct things to leverage the financial tools around you to focus on the benefit you want to deliver to the world. And, you know, you spend your whole time employing people who don't hit the mark of what you need. You know, you have too many people. I mean, ultimately, all you're doing is creating a worse environment for everyone. The people who work for you and and don't know that they're not delivering that value will never grow. They'll never get better. You know, your business in general will never grow large enough to make the kind of impact you could make. And a lot of the beliefs that are anti-money tend to be limiting on your impact as well. So I want to point that out because there's a lot of good that you can do by becoming financially successful in this world. But you also need to balance that with the spiritual and self-development side of your personality. Because as your tool gets more powerful, you know, as you have more wealth to utilize and deploy, you need to be wiser about how you're using it. Yeah. And I think you, you bring up a really, really good point because I think a lot of wealthy people, you know, they, they think about that after they get rich, right? Suddenly they feel this overwhelming sense of guilt about their money and their wealth because they have it now. And then they go about the process of trying to find spiritual success or in Bill Gates's case, start his giving pledge because you, you've gone through your whole life kind of just kind of suppressing that. Like, why am I actually, why do I want these things? And I think if you ask anyone who's on the pursuit of, of wealth or money, they ask, why do you want money? On the list of things, very few of those people are like, I want to solve, I want to solve world hunger. They say, right. I want to have a mansion. I want, I want a boat. Have, I want a boat. Those things like that takes time. Like I, I used to be that way at 18, 19, 20 years old when I, because of what I saw, I listened to hip hop music. This is what I need to do to have. These are the things I need to be attached to. And it's funny, it's not even for ourselves. It's so that other people think that we have something that we already have, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was talking, so, you know, news, news for everybody on the podcast, you know, Partha got a new car, is very happy about it, got a Tesla. And I was talking to our mutual friend, Nafis, who's, yep. who's my roommate out here. And we were talking about, you know, where does one spend money? And when yep. you're younger, you spend it on impressing others, to your yep. point. And as you age, you start to realize that the best use of money is on improving the quality of your life so that you yep. can be a better value add to others. So you can be more present, so you can be more optimistic, so you can be yep. kinder and more caring. And that side of, of the perspective is, is, you know, lacking for a lot of people when they think about business. So like any CEO, any great, and I say great to emphasize this, any great founder is not building a business to make money, but they're leveraging many, many people and a lot of financial tools to improve themselves to the utmost degree so they can be of the most service to society. Yeah, that's the bottom line. That's the it, uh, capitalism gets really vilified, but if you approach it 
from a spiritual context as to what you're really doing, it's an elegant system. It's yeah. a really great way to enable things to operate. And if, but, problems, yeah. if problems are being solved, right? Yeah. There's going to be collateral damage to problems being solved. That's just the way that the world has always worked. You know, there have been world wars to get to a greater good. You know? Yeah. And we talk about it, about, you know, about the podcast, about our personal presences, but yeah. it's like you, in your head, you have to accept that if you have any aspiration of financial success, there comes with it a responsibility that you have to conduct yourself with where you have to acknowledge that you are a person in this world that's going to get looked up to. People are going to ask you a lot of questions. You're, you know, you're going to be put on a platform to be analyzed and there's a responsibility of how you live that comes with the financial success you might be looking for. Yeah. So even with this podcast it's like dude like we talk about this all the time off air but you know I like to highlight this on air. It's like it's not about just showing up and delivering an episode, but it's yeah. about delivering something from a perspective that could help somebody who you know could have been us a year ago, three years ago, 10 years ago, or even like a week ago, something we needed to hear along the way that would keep us going and help us you know fine tune to like what is the mindset that's going to get me to build out what's in my head in the real world? Like, how can I stop limiting myself to, to do that? And, you know, oftentimes those limits are internally placed because we have negative beliefs about money, we have negative beliefs about fame or attention, and we associate those things with people that we don't look up to. Yeah. But, you know, I would challenge you, you know, anytime you have a negative belief, look at somebody who does that positively. Like, AOC is my example of somebody politically who you know, I disagree with almost everything she says, but I respect the hell out of how she moves. Yeah. That's somebody I believe is doing politics the right way. And even though I don't disagree with her, I tremendously respect the community and the passion with which she builds. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, you know, my views on her are a little bit different. Yeah. Um, I think that she is fascinating in the sense that i think she's an example of somebody who wants to do the right thing but doesn't fully understand quite yet that she, there are even things that she does um that contradict what she preaches by virtue oh, for sure for sure just by virtue of being a politician all the time yeah you but know? by virtue of being a person though yeah yeah and that's that's True, you know, I think there's the universal rule that I found in life that you can't get away with is that power corrupts. Power corrupts every single person who attains it. Now, there are people who reconcile it faster than others and say, and still stay connected to the point where they're able to say, you know what, this is my hubris, this is my ego, this is. But a lot of times the rules change for these people and they just don't get it. Like you, they say things that seem like common sense to me and you aren't common sense to Elon Musk anymore. Just yeah. basic human decency and interactions and how you treat people. He doesn't have to live by those rules anymore. You yeah. know? Um, and the same in a smaller degree in the entertainment world. A lot of people are no longer Kanye West fans. Yeah. And, a lot of it has to do with the fact that 
there's no connectivity there. What made Kanye so great is that he enhanced and he showcased a lot of the insecurities. You know, I was just listening to some of his music that he had. I'm like, dude, you're preaching stuff that you don't even live by anymore. Yeah. And what you, you said the phrase stay connected, right? People who stay connected. Yeah. And the question is, V, connected to what? You know, how would you how would you define say the connectivity? One thing that I always say is I'm grateful for my life's experiences because I've seen how people in so many different walks of life actually live from somebody in India who's lives in a shed, literally a shed made of cow dung and 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 leftover palm tree leaves Mm -hmm. you know to the perspective of someone who's a billionaire right and once you see when you say stay connected staying connected to the fact that when you become successful your reality has changed but the truth is the reality for 99.9 percent of people is outside of yours so when i say stay connected is to stay grounded in the sense of understanding that what you live by a different set of rules now than other people and you should be grateful for it but staying connected means still understanding that those people can't do the same things and preaching to the when you preach to those people about what they should do with their lives you're speaking from a position of entitlement now yeah dude um, also i want to i want to touch on something i saw during a nfl sunday this weekend there was a, I wish I could remember who it was. It's a rookie in the league. Um, I'm just going to say it's Chase Young because we love yeah. Chase Young. So um, the commentator said, look at that young man. He comes in, he makes an impact play. He comes off the field and it's just business with him, yeah. right? And he was very clear about saying it's just business. And I was thinking about that deeply because there's so many athletes that flaunt, right? There's so many that show it off. There's so many that are crazy active. Was that, wait, maybe this was last night. They were talking about Devonta Smith. Anyway, um, so many, so many people that are showy, right? But society value deeply at our core, uh, subconsciously, you know, what we value is like, oh, he was, you know, stone cold, right? He was unconscious when he played, right? He was like, lights out like why do all of our phrases imply detachment from the actual action well it's because the traits that we are all striving for as humans is success because of like pure skill and talent we build over time and we don't value people who flaunt that success right so we value the underdog finally achieving success and you're allowed to celebrate but like you know outside of that that's not what people are looking for. And I think the powerful thing that I took from it is that what when you become extremely successful in life, your success in, in business should still not be the only thing in your life. You know, you still have family, you still have friends, you still have spirituality, you still have, you know, diet, working out, sleep, all of these other things that, you know, add up to be more than just what you do for a profession. And Mm -hmm. that detachment is important to be able to gain the sense of perspective and like lack of emotion out of all of the things we do on a day-to-day basis to 
create the impact we want to create because those emotional reactions, you know, we started this conversation talking about the emotional reaction leading to the capital invasion. Those emotional reactions are, are unnecessary. And anytime you act like that, you're going to have a karmic, you know, reaction. There's going to be something that, that is negatively affected in your life as a result of that. So when you're choosing what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, if you can find a sense of detachment from the actual success that you're striving for, quote unquote, you have the ability to make decisions more rationally. And you also have the ability to be happy without needing financial success to be happy. So to your point, no matter where you are on the spectrum financially, the poor villager in rural India, you know, who I've also met, their happiness is the same as the fulfilled billionaires I know who have no real passion for money, just an understanding of how it works and a desire to utilize it as a tool to create the impact they want to create, but with far greater emphasis on their families and on their friends and on their growth. Yeah. And it underscores a, a, a point, right? Like actually going and seeing India and their world and also seeing the changes that are happening there now. Now that poor villager, now that they have access to smartphones and TVs, now they're able to see the disparity or what it is they're, they're lacking by the, 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 me, the machine that pushes forth the agenda of this is what you're supposed to have. And you're seeing the rapid change in those people in the same way when, when I say the system is what's corrupting people, we blame the wrong people. I don't blame the capital rioters for rioting. It's the system by which people like that are created and encouraged to do things that are against their own self-interest and, quite frankly, against the law, thinking those people think that they are patriots. Yeah. You know? So. I guess the bottom line from this conversation is if you want happiness in life and you also want financial success, you should focus on not bringing your happiness into your life from any extrinsic place. And you should focus on limiting your emotional reactions to the things outside of you that you can't control. Yep. And actually ask yourself the questions of go through the process of figuring out Ask yourself the, the big question, whatever the big questions that you have dilemmas about in life, is this right or wrong? Ask yourself those questions, go through the process. And the truth is, don't set expectations of like, I need to be in this spiritual center by the time I'm 18 or 19 or 20. It might be 50, it might be 60 for some people, but as so long as you attack life with the process of questioning yourself and questioning your thoughts versus saying reinforcing reinforcing beliefs that you've never even questioned and saying oh i'm right this is the right way like that's such a hard thing to do but if you yeah. do that you know you definitely will lose one of i think one of the most harmful traits that i think develops in capitalism which is jealousy and envy of okay, well, you know, Elon Musk might still be jealous of Jeff Bezos for something. You know what I mean? And it's like, you guys are both have more money than God. There's no reason for either one of you, but they find these things and reasons to be unhappy versus appreciate that 
different people have different journeys, right? Like if I see someone who's successful at something, even if they're in the same field, I applaud. It's not, it's not a knock on you if someone has attained something that people feel is more objectively successful, whether it be money, car, whatever it is, they're just going through their journey, you know? Yeah. And that, that mindset comes from understanding that there is no limited amount of success in this world. Yeah. It's an unlimited amount. So yeah. any amount of wealth you want to create, you can. You just have to put in the systematic amount of work to do so. Yeah. It's yeah. purely a function of what you're willing to do over the long term. And so, you know, whether you're building your own company or whether you're working a job, you should have an understanding that the decisions you're making financially are really not a reflection of who you are by any means. They're just you know, what you're doing on the business front. But from the standpoint of you know, whether it's political ideologies, whether it's you know sports, wh- whatever it might be, when you feel or you see these emotional reactions out of people, it implies a lack inside of them. It has no bearing on you. Yeah. And, and when you react... Says something about the society too. Yeah, structure. It's not your fault. And I, and one thing I will say, it's very dangerous to overly invest in things like you said that do not have a day to day impact. Like one of the things that I see with a lot of these people, the capital, they're overly invested in politics when the politics are not really the real reason that they're frustrated with their lives. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a trigger and it's a, it's an outsource or a place to place blame or displace blame that should be internal. Yeah. Um, And it's easier to do that, to blame someone else or outside factor for why things aren't going well. It's a lot harder to do the opposite. And I think if as a society, we start training people, to think along those ways, what does it actually mean to be economically self-sufficient? Everybody can't be a millionaire, you know? Who, where do you fall on the spectrum? Where are your ambitions lie? Do you have the work ethic to, to start a business? Everyone wants to say, I want to be my own boss. Everybody's not meant to be their own boss. Yeah. yeah. And the, the other part of that too is accountability. It's understanding, to your point, take accountability for the things you need to take accountability for and take responsibility. And, you know, I won't react emotionally to political posts because that's a waste of my energy. And I'd rather be focusing on making more money or building a business or doing what I want to do, improving myself, right? You have to make that decision for yourself. You have to recognize that you're wasting your energy and you're slowing yourself down. But at the same time, you know, you can't take responsibility for things that are not in your control. So you can't feel sad about somebody else's decisions. Like you have to understand that those decisions are their own and they you know show you exactly what's going on inside of that person's head and and heart at the end of the day. Like if you're sad about the ride at the Capitol building, I mean, I've got news for you. There's nothing you could do about that. It's a whole yeah. bunch of very hurt people that needed to tell the world how hurt they were. Yep. Yep. You know, and then you don't have control over that. And a lot of the people that you do attach blame to, they don't necessarily have control over that. 
Yeah. yeah. And wouldn't it be great if on the news, instead of talking about, you know, how disillusioned those people were, we could say, how can we help those people live happier lives? Wouldn't that be a better way to deal with this stuff? It would be, but that's not how people get rich. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it will be, man. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll do it. We'll start it here. You heard it here first. Just like the Devante Smith Heisman call. You heard it here first. Yeah. I mean, I do think there's a potential for it. You know, I see stories of hope all the time, even within business and within America. You know, I mean, if you look at innovation in itself, some innovation is going to lead to negative impact on society. Some is going to lead to a positive impact on society. But if we don't have people pursuing both of those interests, we're not going to have the good with the bad. Right. And I think, you know, our system is the system in which we live. I'm very, I do think that we're going through a reinvention process here um, because I do think that there are a lot of people who are realizing and being exposed to the manipulation that they faced. Amazing. So this is our, what, second podcast of the year here, V? Yep. Let us know if you like this style of news and notes. I think this is, at least this is what we stand for. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. I could tell you, V, I would not be happy if we spent the whole year criticizing people on this podcast. Oh, that's never fun. That's just feeding into the machine. We probably, yeah. We'd probably be able to put ourselves in an algorithm and increase our viewership ex- quite a bit. But, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's, this is definitely enjoyable. You know, I think there, it's important to talk about the things that are going on in a different way. So, you know, we'll definitely, we'll continue to do that and share our thoughts on stuff that's going on. But, uh, and if you guys listening, you know, if you appreciate the way we're, working to provide these nuanced perspectives on what's going on and you know really trying to tie everything back into the core concept here which is that you know at pilot boys we want we want you to be yourself we want you to understand what it takes to succeed in society what it takes to fly and you know ultimately uh, we want to help you feel enabled to take that leap for yourself 100% and 100% with that said i guess that's a good good place here to wrap up um you know, another episode of News and Notes and another episode of the podcast. You know, we hope that you guys are getting some some value out of what we're providing. And always remember to be you. You as fly. Pilot Boys out. Pilot boys, we get on now.